Okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we ask that you give us strength and wisdom as we go out into the world so that we may bring the world closer and our friends and neighbors to fulfilling your great priestly prayer in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, that all may be one by explaining the truths of your holy church. St. Dominic. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, I'm Larry Pryor. I'm the secretary of the chapter and the webmaster. And uh, I was raised Southern Baptist. And about 20 years ago, I converted and came into Holy Mother Church. Uh, I've got a degree in international relations, and uh, currently I do graphic and web, uh, website design. I'm married to a credo Catholic, my wife Cara, who is much too good for me. Just ask her. And part of uh, sort of the uniqueness of having a marriage where one is a convert and one is cradle Catholic, I joke that she teaches me about the, the cultural aspects of Catholicism, and I teach her about the doctrine of the church. <laughs> so, but, you know, it's kind of proprietous that I'm giving this talk right as the 800th anniversary has started, because um, sort of the genesis of this was, was realizing that in a lot of ways we're in the same situation as St. Dominic was in and when he was passing through southern France with the Albigensians. We are a very small minority in this area. Um, and I don't know that, I, I've noticed talking to, to cradle Catholics, there are, uh, you know, there's a lot you don't know about our separated brothers and sisters. Now, we could do uh, presentations on different aspects of Protestantism and for the next five years and we wouldn't cover it all. But so I want to talk a little bit about you know, my background, what I had taught or what I believed as a Southern Baptist because they are the majority uh, religious group in our area. Uh, Pew Research does a religious landscape study Periodically, and the last one was in 2014, and the results came out in less than a year ago. And some of the interesting facts, kind of buried in there, is that in Tennessee, Catholics are Tennessee is the least Catholic state in the nation in terms of percentage. Only in the nation, only six percent of the population in the state of Tennessee is Catholic. And Six percent. Fifty-two percent are evangelical. Thirteen percent are mainline, and I'll just try to describe the difference between the two here in a minute. And they also uh, separated out historically black uh, denominations, which are at eight percent. And the, actually, the second largest group that they uh, subdivide by are nuns. Not the good nuns in UNS, but nuns in O-N-E, those who do not have a religion. <laughs> and <laughs> with, the, with the, well, let's not call them bad nuns, but the other nuns, uh, only a very small percentage are actually atheist or agnostic. Atheist being declaring there is no God, agnostic not being sure if there's a God or not. 
the vast majority in this group are people who they just don't have a religion. And the interesting thing is half of those people think that religion is important. So those are definitely people we can reach out to. Um, now, uh, these, these terms evangelical and mainline, that's usually how Protestants are, are subdivided. Evangelicals would be Southern Baptist, Church of God, Assemblies of God, Church of Christ. Um, they tend to be very low church, in the, the terms high church and low church. Uh, a high church is one that is very liturgically focused, especially in their worship. They usually have a hierarchy of some sort. Low church, no hierarchy, and services are more structured, and the emphasis is on teaching. Uh, and in this area, you know, evangelicals are the largest group, and Southern Baptists make up over 20% of the population of Tennessee. So by far the largest single group within the state. Uh, the mainline denominations, that, that, that's going to be uh, Lutheran, Episcopalian, those sorts. Uh, they, they tend to be more, his, come out of a more historical tradition. They usually have, like I said, a hierarchy and a liturgy. So, Church of Christ, Church of Christ that, would sort of be, that would be evangelical. Now, and even this gets to be sort of, you, you, can, you may have to look, but you could probably find a Southern Baptist church that was kind of liturgical, and you could find an Episcopal church that is low church. Uh, out of the Anglican tradition, which the Episcopalians are part of, that's where these terms sort of originated to differentiate uh, Anglican or Episcopal churches and their emphasis. Now, I grew up Southern Baptist, which was, is low church, evangelical. And the emphasis was definitely on teaching. But we did have, not communion, but the Lord's Supper, but we only did it once every three months. And if you know anything about Southern Baptist, you know we have a, a Sunday morning service, a Sunday evening service, and there's usually a service on Wednesday night. And the church where I grew up, we usually had the Lord's Supper at the Sunday evening service. Um, now there's one thing I wanted to ask before we really sort of dove into it. How many of us are converts in the group? Wow. <laughs> I, expected, I expected it to be sizable. I didn't expect it to be this sizable. It looks like nearly half of us. So, so out of the converts, how many were Southern Baptists? Pretty sizable. So for you, this isn't you know going to be maybe that enlightening. Um, and, and I should mention at the beginning that you know what I say. Remember, this is uh, over the course of some years. It was m what I had come to understand, and my memory may be faulty, and my understanding may have been faulty. So let's talk a little bit about Southern Baptist. Uh, one thing as Catholics that you really need to know is that it is really different. But there, there's a core there. And I have, when I talk to converts, we all pretty much have the same attitude. No matter where we came from, we are so grateful to where we, from where we came. Because we were taught some really good things there. I will always be grateful because at this little Baptist church, 
is where I first learned about God. It's where I first learned about Jesus. It's where I first learned about scriptures. It's where I fell in love with God in the scriptures. And when I became Catholic, I didn't leave any of that behind. I brought it with me. And in the Catholic Church, I found the fulfillment of that. And so when we talk with our separated brothers and sisters, we need to look for that good. And do, you know, and really this is what St. Dominic did with the Albigensians. He saw that they had some, there was good there. Their quest for holiness and their zeal and their poverty. And he took that and he showed them the proper way to express that within the church. So I think most, most of not all of us converts, we, we sort of have that same experience. So remember, when you're talking with Protestants, there's going to be, if nothing else, we can always go back to Jesus. There's going to be a baseline where we can communicate. Um, so some of the uh, differences of Southern Baptists versus Catholics. Uh, Southern Baptists have no creed. They are not creedal. And sometimes I'll still say we in terms of Baptists. But, uh, the closest that it's had is what is called the Baptist faith and message. And it's sort of an agreement, a general agreement on what Southern Baptists believe. There's also no hierarchy. There are no bishops. Each individual church is autonomous and rules itself. They come together in the Southern Baptist Convention to for you know, common work and common cause. You know, for missions and publishing and things of that nature. Uh, and because it's autonomous, there are no bishops. There is no sacramental theology as such. We do not have the sacraments, and therefore we do not have priests. What is what the belief is that is what we would call well, what they call the priesthood of all believers, which is really analogous to the Catholic understanding of the common priesthood, that we are all priests in a way. Southern Baptists would just say, "That's all there is." Yeah, my priesthood is equal to yours, is equal to the pastors, and the pastor is really there to be a teacher to offer pastoral counseling, and to oversee the day-to-day operations of the church. Um, yes, some authority, but it's not like the authority that Bishop Toby has. Uh, and, but while there are no sacraments, there are what are called ordinances, and there are two ordinances. There is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, and this comes from the Baptist faith and message. Baptism is done out of obedience, and it is a symbolic, symbolic of the believer's faith. What I was taught was that it was a public profession of faith, and that's all it was. It's not quite my understanding when I was baptized, but that's uh, you know, the, you know, what the Baptist faith and message says about it. You are not cleansed by of your sins when you are baptized. In the Lord's Supper, there is no belief in the real presence. It is merely a memorialization of the death of Jesus. In this regard, it's kind of like how we memorialize the Fourth of July. You know, we remember it and we think of what came from it, but there's not this idea of uh, amnesis, which is what we believe about. The Eucharist, which is 
when we celebrate the Eucharist, we're not just remembering what happened at the Last Supper. We are actually entering into it as actors. We connect with it. So it's ongoing. Uh, and this is the same sort of belief that Jews have about Passover. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about my faith growing up. I do not remember a time when I didn't believe in God. I can remember being five, going somewhere in the car, in the back seat, and being concerned about what God wanted me to do with my life. It's sort of one of my earliest memories. And that's kind of been an ongoing discussion between me and the Lord for the past 40 years in some way, shape, or form. And we, uh, you know, we, we went to this little old Baptist church, and you know the structure of how Sunday mornings are for Baptists, you show up at church, you go to Sunday school, and everybody goes to Sunday school. It's divided off by age groups. And then we would all meet in the sanctuary, except for the little kids who would go to the nursery. And we'd have our service, which I realized in a strange way sort of lines up with the liturgy of the Word. Um, there are prayers and there are hymns, and of course the big chunk is the pastor preaching, which I love being at Mass, and when the priest starts, his homily goes more than 10 minutes. I like to look around because the cradle Catholics are kind of dancing in their seat. And you can tell the, the Southern Baptist converts, because we're kicked back going, oh, he's just getting warmed up. But so, and then the pastor, you know, the pastor would preach at least for 45 minutes, if not more. You know, based on the Bible, some pastors, you know, delved more into well, like a Bible study, and others it was more uh, relevant teaching, but you know, connecting with Scripture. And then at the end, there would be a call to come down and give your life to Christ. And I'm sure if you're Baptist, you've probably heard the every head bowed every eye closed to so you know so that if people were a little embarrassed they could come down and so you know we'd be singing the congregation would be singing a hymn people would come down they would dedicate their lives to Christ or rededicate their lives publicly to Christ because there's no confession this kind of substituted for it and then you know the service would be over and uh, we'd be again that night. Now, if you're like me, you know, I, I started to really sort of get serious about my faith and really attending church regularly when I was in high school. So as a high school boy, you'd get to this point of the service where the pastor's calling for people to come down and dedicate their lives to Christ. And being 14, I'm standing there thinking, Lord, the football game is about to start. Please don't let anybody get saved today. But... So eventually, uh, you know, I, I always loved the, the stories in the Bible. And when I started to get serious, I would read the Bible more and more on my own. And I sort of had this understanding even then that I had a relationship with God, and that I was a sinner, and that Jesus was the path to God, that he was the one who would forgive me. But, and I knew that there was a point where I would have to dedicate my life to Christ, but, I, you know, I didn't know when that was going to happen. Now, as you can tell, as Baptist from the name, very particular about baptism. For one thing, it has to be by immersion, which is uh, beautiful because it, you know you see the whole symbolism of the believer 
dying and rising again in Christ. But we, Baptists also believed only in believers' baptism. You had to express a belief in Christ as your Savior before you could be baptized. So obviously, did not baptize children. So one day, I'm reading the Gospels, and I run across a passage, and Jesus is very adamant that you must be baptized. You know, I hadn't really had this sort of, you know, St. Paul type epiphany, but I see a clear command from God, you must be baptized. Good enough for me. So I go to my mom, and I tell her I want to be baptized. We go to the pastor, and the pastor asks me some simple questions about, you know, what I believe about God, about Jesus. Do I want to, you know, turn my life around and give it to him? Well, yeah, this is what you've taught me all my life. I, this is what I've been trying to do. And he asked me to pray the sinner's prayer. Now, this is sort of the, the Baptists would say, this is the moment when you are saved, when you turn your life over to Christ. And I found this one that is apparently one that Billy Graham used at his crusades, and I think it's probably the one that they had me pray. And it goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In your name, amen. Now, I had some pretty funny ideas for a Baptist. We'd sing hymns about washing away my sins. I see this passage in the Bible. Jesus is talking about you must be baptized by water and the Spirit. I had this funny idea that I already had this relationship with Jesus, even though I hadn't officially turned my life over to him. I hadn't had that sort of epiphany. And from the imagery and scripture and the hymns, I had thought that it was baptism that was going to wash away my sins. I told this story to my wife a few years ago, and she said, Oh my God, you've always been Catholic. (laughs) So, the day of baptism comes, and if you've never seen a baptism like this, or a baptismal, you can actually see it in the Catholic Pastoral Center now, the old Two Rivers Baptist Church. You know, there are pews, there's a pulpit, and then behind the pastor, there is a choir area, and then there was a very simple cross. And there is a baptismal, it's about three to four feet deep. So the day of my baptism, I show up, wearing clothes, got a change of clothes, put on a white choir robe, come down the stairs into the water, and there's the pastor on you know, his Sunday best in a choir robe and fishing waders, because he's smart. So he, you know, go down in the water, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, come out of the water, go, dry off, change clothes, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm a real Christian now. I've been baptized. Yeah, I'm going to find out the secret handshake and you know, you know, get more in-depth. But it was sort of like, okay, that's it. Which, you know, was a little strange to me. I, like I said, I was expecting more. But um, so I, you know, but I continue my life of faith. And like all walks of faith, it grows colder, grows warmer. I learn more. And we, so we come through high school, get into college, fall away a little bit. But I should mention, in high school, my best friend was Catholic. He still is. He's a better Catholic today than he was then. And uh, 
don't tell him I said that. We, we had another friend who was Jehovah's Witness, and we would have some really interesting discussions. You know, a Catholic, a Baptist, and a Jehovah's Witness, being high school students who thought we knew everything. So, and also in high school, I uh, sort of a sci-fi and fantasy geek. Uh, I discovered Tolkien. And through Tolkien, I kept hearing about this writer named C.S. Lewis. And so I started reading Lewis. And then through him, you know, other writers like Owen Barfield, and one in particular I kept hearing about but hadn't read named G.K. Chesterton. So I start college. Eventually I wind up as an international relations major. I get introduced to St. Augustine in Western political theory. And I have this sort of a momentous month. I should also mention my, my sort of thoughts on the Lord's Supper becoming a little more high church. So I go through about a month where I end up reading the Confessions of St. Augustine, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, and one day I'm killing time in the MTSU library between classes. And I find this huge book on the creeds and confessions of Christian denominations. And I open it up and I'm looking through there. Remember, Baptists are not creedal. This is the first time I'd ever seen the Apostles' Creed in the Nicene Constantinople Creed. I'm like, what is this? And I'm looking, and I look at the Southern Baptist section, and there's the Baptist Faith and Message, and because my friend's Catholic, I look in the Catholic section and some other little sections, and there's some really weird ones out there. But, yeah, and this begins to, I begin thinking, well, how do I know that you know, I'm, I, as a Baptist, am right. I mean, look at all, you know, it was a huge tome, all these different creeds and confessions. Well, who's right? How can I know who's right? And it also, you know, I said, discovered Nicene and Constantinople. Go looking, okay, what's that? These things called church councils, where all the bishops would meet and hash out whatever was a problem at the time. So I check out this book on uh, the great Christological councils of the fourth century. And I'm running into words, poor little southern boy, you know, homoousius. Letters that I know are Greek from physics and math, but I have no idea what they say. Concepts never seen before. Get uh, introduced to Arianism and Nestorianism and some of these old heresies that you know, are still around in one shape or form. In Arianism, I kind of get, you know, from reading scripture, I can see where you, would, you could believe that Jesus was a human who sort of became God wasn't always God from, you know, some verses here and there that so how do I know who's right? I do see where these councils eventually decided that Jesus is fully human you know, like us in all things except sin and fully God. And I'm like, great, that's what I believe. And I begin to realize that as a Baptist, we're kind of living off this patrimony of these early church councils who really decided the issue and we sort of ran with it from there. Because my my understanding of church history could be summed up as, you know, Jesus lived, died, rose again, taught the disciples for 40 days, ascended into heaven, sent the disciples out, they eventually wrote the Bible, some time passed, and Billy Graham was born. <laughs> so, you know, I never heard of councils knew nothing about the church fathers or that early part of church history up until, you know, the modern day. So that begins to kind of percolate thinking about it. 
Well, uh, so it's sort of developing a more high church philosophy, especially that the Lord's Supper is very important. Well, during this time, my, my, fr- my uh, Catholic friend had invited me to midnight mass every year during Christmas. And I would go, and I could see, you know, that there is something different. And they think that Eucharist is really important for the Lord's Supper. So, when Christmas comes around, and I go to my church, we're having a candlelight service at 6. And having sort of come to this belief that the Lord's Supper is very important, that Christmas is an important day, we should obviously be having the Lord's Supper tonight. And we did. And at that point, I came to the realization, I don't think I'm Baptist anymore. I don't know what I am, but I know I'm not Baptist. So I'm, I'm going to have to find you know, a new home. So later that night, I go with my friend to Midnight Mass. And if you think you know where the story is going, yet don't. <laughs> now, I'm looking to receive communion. Ah, and I'm a Baptist at Holy Rosary. And I read in the Missal, I can't receive communion. I'm not a happy camper. I actually remember saying to myself, I will never bend a knee in this church. I don't know what I'm going to be, but I know I'm not going to be Catholic. Well, also around this time, I, uh, my, my best friend and I began living together. We were roomies. He knows I'm kind of going through this search for a new church home. Well, and he, he's after me to give the church a fair hearing. So I find this book by Carl Keating called Catholicism and Fundamentalism. And I'm like, great, and I'll go through it, I'll understand the differences, and I'll be able to dispatch them fairly easily. Yeah, not so easily. Uh, I get introduced to ideas like the role presence in the Eucharist, uh, the role of priests and bishops, and the one that really struck home, how do I know what's in the Bible belongs in the Bible, and that the Bible is actually inspired? Because the Quran claims to be inspired, they say the Book of Mormon is inspired. Mormons do. How do I know that scriptures are what I believe they are? I just accepted it on faith without really thinking about it. So now I'm really confused. And some of these issues, like the real presence in Mary, I, I can't disprove to myself, but I don't believe. But I'm beginning to see what, where there's a need for someone who has an authority to teach. I didn't know the word magisterium yet, or that's what I was looking for. So my friend and I are talking about things as things are going along, and I get this idea. I find out that the Episcopalians and the Anglicans, they don't really have a definitive answer to these issues either. You can believe whatever you want. And I'm thinking, if this is good enough for C.S. Lewis, who is sort of the godfather of my intellectual conversion, is good enough for me. I'm going to become an Episcopalian. So I start to look into the Episcopal Church. They've got women priests. No. No, that's not going to... You know, no, things are not lining up. Not the, But these are Episcopalians. Surely if Lewis was an Anglican, Anglican's what I want. And it just so happened, down on Lebanon Road, there was a little house that looks like has a church attached. Well, at this time, it was called, I believe, an old Anglican church. I'm like, that's where I'm going to go. I'm saying to myself, I'm going to drop by there, I'll talk to them at some point. That's where, good enough for Lewis, good enough for me. 
So my friend and I are continuing to discuss things. And he's leaving to go to work. We work different shifts. And he tells me, Larry, do you really know what the answer is? He goes, I don't know why you're fighting it. I mean, you're going to become an Anglican, a church that grew out of because some guy couldn't get a divorce. Really? I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, Lewis. So he goes to work. I turn on the TV. I'm flipping through channels. I get to, uh, I think it was TNT, and there's a historical movie coming on. I'm like, oh, great, love history. This is going to be great. It's got Charlton Heston. I love Charlton Heston. So I start watching the movie. It's a man for all seasons. Yeah, you've probably seen the more famous 60s version of Paul Schofield. Sounds like all of you know what this movie is. Talk about Providence. (laughs) By the time we get to the end of the movie, I'm over Clint. And I should mention, back when I read the Catholic part of that huge tome of Creeds and Confessions, there was a line in there that it is the Catholic Church teaches that it is a sin for a man to know that the church is the true church. That the church teaches that it is a sin for a man to know that the church is the true church and not enter into her. And that line haunted me. So I get to the end of a man for all seasons. And I just look up and I'm like, okay, God, I'm done. I'm not fighting anymore. Yeah, John was right. That was the worst thing about becoming Catholic. Saying John was right. Uh, and you know I still had problems, issues with uh, Mary and the communion of saints and you know some other things uh, uh, you know, church authority because oddly enough for someone who was really politically conservative being an evangelical I almost sounded like a radical feminist you know, man, gonna tell me what to do. Because Baptist theology is very much, it's you and Jesus and the scriptures, and you can get everything you need out of scriptures. Scriptures, you know, the Holy Spirit will lead you personally to all truth. You know, I mean, scriptures will be easy to understand. Really? Have you read Revelation? So, as a, later I found a great explanation for what I was going through. Because at this point, thinking back to you know that council that sort of decided how we would think about Jesus, the truth of him being human and God, and how scriptures came about, I realized I was able to accept the magisterium that if I trusted scriptures and if this is who Jesus is, then I can trust the tradition that this came out of and the magisterium that this came out of on other issues. Uh, Cardinal Newman said that makes a distinction between a doubt and a difficulty. I didn't, at this point, while I didn't understand Mary, I didn't doubt that it was true. I just had difficulty understanding it because I believed in the magisterium. That this is how, what Je- this was the organization, this was the church Jesus set up to teach authority. Because, you know, I tried, I don't really see how you get everything out of scripture without help. And if the pastor may have more learning, but he doesn't really have any authority to teach, well, how do I know what's true? And I see that God's got me covered. He did create a church with authority to teach and to say what is true. 
And so, I found myself back at Holy Rosary, literally running into Father Classic, and in the church where I said I would never have been to me, asking, how do I become Catholic? Going through RCA about 20 years ago now. Now, they say if you want God to laugh, tell him your plans. Yes, sure. So, thinking back about why I had such a reticence about becoming Catholic, because the church I grew up in, it wasn't overtly anti-Catholic. We didn't think about Catholics. Um, you know, we knew that, you know, I knew that Catholics were wrong, <laughs> that they weren't us, therefore they were wrong. But there was a very latent anti-Catholicism. Catholics might be Christian, probably aren't. That Catholicism was some weird mix of paganism and real Christianity. Um, and so, you know, I had to look for answers to that. Well, okay, why do you pray to the saints? That sounds like necromancy to me. Well, no, it's the same as asking anyone to pray for you. I mean, they're not really dead. They're in heaven. And I'm not asking for knowledge I shouldn't have, which is the goal of necromancy. I'm asking for help. Pray for me. So eventually, all these difficulties were dispelled. I mean, so... No. No, there was really nothing that was actually taught. The only time I remember the Catholic Church coming up uh, from the pastor is when he was talking about Mary and said he was going to stop there because he didn't want to sound too Catholic. That was it. This other was sort of a cultural thing. And I also realized that part of it was that you know Catholicism was foreign, which I think we sort of, especially here in the South, we sort of get from the English. Who, which, you know, it's amazing to look at how Catholic that country was, and in two generations, Catholicism was foreign and not English. Um, and I think in the South, we still have sort of the residue of that. Uh, so, I, I'm running out of time, so I want to give you a couple of quick sort of points when you're talking to your Protestant friends. Number one, never be afraid to say, I don't know. Never be afraid to say, I don't know. Try to find out and get back to them, but don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Um, remember that they probably have some ideas about Catholicism that even if they don't see them, that they think that are completely dead wrong. That you worship statues, you worship Mary, um, you're engaged in this sort of necromancy with the communion of saints, and you know the Pope is secretly sending you messages by wireless telling you when to brush your teeth. Um, also remember that our separated brothers and sisters, our Protestants, they love Jesus too, and there is a lot of good there, and that they're striving to know Jesus just like we are. And we can you know, look for that good and try to show them how that good is in the Catholic Church too and is fulfilled in the Catholic Church. Um, the other thing I would say to remember is that Protestantism tends to be very individualistic. You, we could probably go out and grab two Southern Baptists who may even go to the same church and ask them about, say, predestination versus free will and get two completely different answers. 
So you've really got to know the person and kind of you know feel them out, see exactly what they believe, and therefore what issues they may have with the Catholic Church, and where you know their thinking is that you can sort of bring over, uh, you know, help them to understand the truth. You know, one of the great things about being Catholic is, and Rick and I were talking about this, is that as a Baptist, I had the Bible. And that was it. But the Holy Spirit was supposed to lead me to all truth. And I had some strange ideas, and I had some things that I was absolutely convinced was right. What I realized is I was running the first council of Larry. And it went on all the time, and it covered every topic, and I agreed with everything that came out of that council. Even if later I decided that council was wrong and updated it. But as a Catholic, you know, immediately you've got the catechism. If I'm confused about something, I can go to the catechism, or the church fathers, or the councils, the documents from the councils. There's no end of teaching. And I don't have to rely just on myself. Because if the Holy Spirit is really leading each individual believer to all truth, we can't name one issue and find agreement between even probably a majority of all Christians without there being at least a significant minority. If the Holy Spirit is leading every individual to all truth, he's doing a poor job. Either that or that's not the way it was supposed to be. Okay, it's almost 4.30, so I'm going to end here. Uh, there's a lot more we could get into, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism, you know, just to hit one subject. I'm going to, try, I'm going to post some sources on the website. I've talked to the webmaster and I said I would do that. And then uh, I'm also going to edit this and make me sound a lot smarter and put roaring crowds in the background on the audio. It's going to be great. But uh, is there? I want to kind of open it up for questions or suggestions about other topics that maybe we can cover on the website. We've got a couple minutes, so any questions or suggestions, Rick? Yeah. Once saved, always saved. Yeah, once saved, always saved. The uh, the belief is that once you've given your heart to Christ and once you are saved, you are going to be saved. That salvation, you cannot lose it. Because, uh, and I forget exactly where in the Gospels, but Jesus says, nothing will be taken out of my hand. Well, later, like in Revelation, Jesus tells us, he who will be saved is he who perseveres till the end. Now, running along with this, there's also a belief that not only is it once saved, always saved, but you can have an absolute assurance in your salvation. So that was one of the problems I began to have. It's like, well, I gave my life to Christ. What if later I decide, you know, this whole Christianity thing is hokum. I'm just going to go, you know, live worldly, do whatever I want. You're telling me I'm still going to go to heaven? You know, even if I publicly renounce Christ? Well, no, 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 you weren't really saved. But I can have assurance to my salvation and once saved God. See, those two ideas, they don't make logical sense. So, you know, you, you've got to divorce one from the other to be logical. And if it's once saved, always saved, but you can be fooled about your salvation, it's like, you know, it's much easier for me to believe that I am in a state of grace and that I'm going to go to heaven, but God respects my free will enough that I can leave if I want to. Nothing will be taken out of his hand, but I'm still free to leave his hand. Okay. Yeah. When they, uh, when Baptists teach in the baptism through 
Yes. They evidently believe that obedience to the word is very important. Right. So how do they reconcile the fact that after the resurrection, the first thing Jesus did and gave to the apostles was the power to forgive sin, and he didn't give them the power to read minds, but to right. forgive sin in his name? Right. How do they reconcile that? Uh, I believe that the answer to that about the, the power of forgiveness was sort of explained as it was through writing the scriptures that the apostles have given this knowledge to humanity and leads us on a path to faith where our sins can be forgiven. Now, obviously, that was another thing. It was like, you know, the Catholic explanation that he actually gave that power as a sacrament to his priest to forgive sins made a lot more sense to me, too. But to retain. See, that, that was also one of those key words where I had a problem with. You know, Marcus Grodi, if you've seen him on EWTN, he talks about the Bible verses I didn't see. Yeah, I'm still finding them. Next. Yes. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, beginning, coming to a full faith in the Eucharist and that it's truly the body and blood of Christ took some time. But probably no surprise hearing from a former Baptist. It's because that's what the Bible says. John chapter 6, Jesus clearly says, This is my body, this is my blood. And while I had been told that, you know, this was sort of symbolic, the more I looked about it, looked at it, and the more I read it, the more I couldn't believe that he only meant it to be symbolic. And actually, if you go through scriptures, because one of the beliefs that we have, and it's canonical interpretation, so it's also a Catholic belief, you can interpret scriptures by other scriptures. So if you look at, you know, if this eating of his flesh is supposed to be symbolic, there are a couple of other places in the Bible where that phrase is used symbolically. And you know what it means? It means to denigrate someone. So if canonical inter- if I can interpret the Bible by the Bible, then what Jesus is telling me, if eat my flesh and drink my blood is symbolic, that I have to denigrate Christ in order to be saved. That fails. Either, so it can't be symbolic. It had to be literal. And it's so like when I was baptized. Why did I do it? Because that's what Jesus said. It's right there in Scripture. Yeah. I still have a little bit of that. Scripture says it, that ends it. Any other comment or question? Okay. Well, uh, we're a little bit past 4.30, so we'll end it here. Uh, if anyone has any other questions or comments or suggestions on this, the website, whatever, drop me an email, let me know. And thank you, I've really enjoyed this.